is from Luke 10, 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That question, Luke records in chapter 10, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We're actually going to come back in a moment and, and consider that, but today we are returning to last week's Old Testament reading from the lectionary found in Deuteronomy 30, which if you know that passage, life is central. So keep that question in mind as we explore this, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, for those, un just a note, for those unfamiliar with the lectionary, I just referred to that. Um, this is Deuteronomy 30, is last week's reading from the lectionary, uh, the Old Testament reading from the lectionary. The lectionary is simply um, a weekly arrangement or collection of scriptures that helps guide our engagement with the Bible throughout the year. And it follows a three-year cycle typically including four or five readings each week. It will include a reading from the Old Testament, which is what we're considering, Deuteronomy 30, typically a psalm, a gospel reading, which we have just read, and another reading usually from one of the other New Testament epistles. But that cycle is designed in such a way that it helps lead us as the church through the entire narrative of scripture during that three-year period. And I, I think one of the real benefits of following the lectionary is that it helps keep our engagement with the Bible from being entirely limited by the choice of whoever happens to be teaching that, like somebody like me. Um, now, there are several texts assigned, so there is still some choice, and we routinely veer off course from the lectionary throughout the year like we are today. We're spending three weeks dealing with last week's Old Testament text. Um, so we aren't super rigid in our use of the lectionary, but it is, in my opinion, a really helpful tool that constantly brings into our minds and our thoughts maybe stories or texts that are relatively unfamiliar or 
maybe challenging to deal with. I've often said that I have a love-hate relationship with the lectionary. I, I love it because it forces us to go through sections of scripture that are unfamiliar or maybe challenging, and ones that I wouldn't necessarily always choose to tackle, but I think that's good for us. But that's also the reason I hate it, because it forces us to do things that are uncomfortable. And anyway, we're returning today to last week's Old Testament text, Deuteronomy. One more note of housekeeping, actually, before we get into it. We are in the season after Pentecost in the church calendar, also referred to as ordinary time, which one of the newest additions in this space is this banner over here. And that banner is a subtle reminder of the season that we are in in the church calendar. So the color of the banner corresponds to the season. So it is green because green is the color assigned for the season after Pentecost. And I hope you like that color because it's going to be like that until Advent in November, so you better get used to it. Um, but that's just a, a very subtle reminder the, um, that we are trying to situate ourselves in a different calendar, in the church calendar, rather than the cultural calendar that we are all familiar with. But we want to situate ourselves in that calendar so that we can situate ourselves in a different story. It's a reminder that we're a part of a different story, the story of the redemption God is bringing to creation in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Okay, that was a lot of housekeeping, but I I actually think it's important. I, I think this sort of symbolism, these routines that we enter in, over the long haul are actually helping shape our imaginations in in a helpful way. So with that being said, let's return to Deuteronomy 30. I'm going to reread the section we concluded with last week, the six verses beginning in verse 15, where we read this. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, By loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. So we started this conversation last week. If, If you missed that, it might be helpful to go back and listen to the audio, which you can find on our website. But again, the choice that is being presented to Israel. Again, this is the next generation of Yahweh's followers, 
right on the cusp of entering the promised land. This is just before Moses dies. And the choice that is presented to this next generation of Yahweh's people is a choice between good and evil, a choice between life and death, with the explicit encouragement to choose life, choose life. We mentioned last week that the call extended to Israel was one of obedient devotion, obedience to God, as described in the law, Exodus through Deuteronomy, obedience is what would set Israel apart, that she might become a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, proclaiming to the world around her the wisdom and justice of her God, and ultimately proclaiming the life God enables. So again, life is central to what we're reading here. The promise is, if you worship and choose the only true God, instead of the many gods of your neighbors, you will experience my blessings, but then also be able to extend those blessings to others. But it is obedience, God says, that, that makes this possible. Now, we need to... Con- in- We're going to come back and consider this at the end of our time today, but the point in these commands, the point in the law that is given to Israel is not, I don't think, um, that God is petty and insecure and if Israel's faith falters or if she chooses to worship idols, that God's ego is going to be uh, hurt in a severe way. And so he needs to put these burdensome laws on Israel in order to force them to stay close to his side. I, I don't think that's what, how we need to understand this. Instead, I think these commandments, the law in general that is given to Israel, is birthed out of this insistence that worshiping any God other than Yahweh is ultimately going to be destructive for them individually, but also collectively as a community. And God wants what is best for his people. He wants them to thrive and to have abundant life. And he also wants Israel, his people, to then be a beacon of hope for her neighbors. And toward that end, he says, choose life. Choose life. Choose me. Be obedient. Walk with me. Behold me, and you will truly live. So the question we consider now is, why is life such a central choice for Israel? Why is this an essential component of who God is calling them to be? Well, I think it's in part because the choice of life, it's not just choosing life as though that were a choice that was completely independent of or disconnected from God. No, choosing life is choosing God. Choosing God is choosing life. In John chapter 10, you may remember this text, but Jesus identifies himself as the good shepherd. He says, I'm the one who knows my sheep. Not only do I know my sheep, I also lay my life down for my sheep. And then we read this in verse 7. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. 
I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So again, we see these uh, opposing realities, death, destruction, life that Jesus brings. Life, according to Jesus himself, is central to his work and mission. He says, the reason I came is that they may have life and have it abundantly. And it's not just central to his mission. In fact, a few chapters later in John 14, Jesus not only describes his mission as life-bringing, but also describes his identity in those terms. His very being is one of life. In verse 6 of that chapter, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So, according to Jesus himself, he is not only bringing life to his people, but he himself is life. I think this is an important place to begin this conversation because if we are interested in pursuing abundant, thriving life, we want our minds to be shaped by Jesus himself. Jesus defines for us what abundant life is. Is. We don't take our ideal or our preconceived notions about life and run Jesus through that filter. We, we take the opposite approach. We run our ideas about life through the filter of Jesus Christ because Jesus is life. It, it's sort of like maybe an athlete or even an employee in a workplace who wants to be successful in that line of work and, but isn't really willing to sacrifice or isn't willing to put in the work to hone a craft or improve a skill set. It's the idea that I, I want to be successful. I want the benefit, but I want it on my own terms. I, I want this to be handed to me on the proverbial silver platter. And I think there's the danger that we might approach our faith in a similar way. Well, of course I want real an abundant life. That sounds great, but I want it on my own terms. I don't want to sacrifice for it, for sure. I don't want to relentlessly resist sin or modern forms of idolatry. No, I want my cake and I want to eat it too. To be honest, I don't even know what that idiom means, but you get the point. What, I, want to eat, I want my cake and I want to eat it too. I don't know. To accept the life that Christ offers, we by necessity relinquish our definitions and allow Jesus to set the terms, trusting that he knows much better what in the end is going to lead to our abundant life. So we are people of life because this is who Jesus is. Think of Jesus weeping at the tomb of Lazarus. Such an interesting story because Jesus knows he is about to raise Lazarus back to life, right? And yet we find him weeping, it seems, because he is coming to terms with the devastation that death and destruction have brought to his creation. This is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not right. 
Or we could think of that line from David Bentley Hart's book. We talked about it several weeks ago, the book The Doors of the Sea, which, by the way, if you're interested in this, it is available on the resource table in the lobby. I think there's one copy left. So if you want to take it, and it's pretty short. You can read it and bring it back. But remember that line, when I see the death of a child, I see the face, not of God, but the face of his enemy. We are people of life because Jesus is life. So again, the instruction given to Israel is choose life. Near the end of the second century, the early church father Irenaeus famously said that the glory of God is a human being fully alive. And then he went on, and to be fully alive consists in beholding God. So how do we choose God as Moses instructs the people in this text? First, we choose life by choosing God. We choose life in beholding God. The next step in the conversation, though, is to recognize that this choice is not just a personal or completely inner spiritual reality. Because as we behold or choose God, that choice of life leads to or prompts countless choices every day in which we are choosing life. Life then becomes for us the guiding principle of our existence. We begin to run everything through the filter of does this action or do these words that I'm speaking promote vibrant life or do they cause destruction? And it's not just choosing life for me. It's not just being content with my personal choice or my salvation or the benefits of abundant life that I have received by entering life with Christ. So it is an individual choice. But it's not just an individual choice. We, we talked about last week the, the individual aspect of that. But it also has to be focused outward as well. Several weeks ago, we prayed this prayer together, a, pr a prayer that made this petition. Put away from us all hurtful things and give us those things that are profitable for us. Give us those things that are profitable or good or maybe life-giving for us. Now, there is a way to pray that prayer that is completely inward-focused. God, give me what is good for me. Give me what I want in this situation or in this moment, which I actually think if approached in a certain way can be a helpful prayer that I would affirm, but there is a broader, I think much more holistic way to pray a prayer like that, one that includes an emphasis not only on our personal well-being, God give me those things that are good for me, but God give us those things that are good for the plural us. Not just me, but others as well. A way that acknowledges my connection to others and understands my life and my well-being in terms of my connection to others. So what is good for me but destructive for somebody else maybe isn't life-giving for me after all in the Christian sense. I don't understand me apart from we. So remember the Shema, 
We, we talked about this last week from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. It goes on, these words shall be on your heart. Teach them to your children. Talk about them. Let them guide your lives. They, they should never be far from your thoughts. So this is a central statement to the message of Deuteronomy. It's central to all of Jewish life. But it's also central to our lives as followers of Jesus. Because remember when Jesus is asked by the Pharisees in Matthew 22, which is the greatest commandment? He points them back to this text. He quotes the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and says, this is the first and greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But then he adds something. He says, and another is like it. And He's not just, it's not just off the cuff. He's actually pulling this from the law as well. He says, another is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So love of God and love of neighbor. He says, on these, all of the law and prophets depend. Our gospel reading from today, Luke chapter 10, we find something similar when the lawyer asks that question we started with today. What must I do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus responds with a question of his own. Well, what does the law say? How do you read that? And the lawyer responds with these same words, love God, love neighbor. And what does Jesus say in verse 28? You have answered correctly, do this and you will live. So it seems for Jesus, when we choose God, we are choosing life, but we are choosing life not only for us, but for our neighbor as well. Jesus suggests that choosing life is related to these twin realities, loving God and loving neighbor. He says, do this and you will live. Now again, Jesus is not just making all of this up. This is all baked into the law. Again, remember Moses is saying, Obey, live in obedience, express obedient devotion, and you will have life. Maybe we would think, I don't know about that because I've read the law of Moses. And it seems pretty primitive. How is that in any way life-giving? But I think it's helpful to remember, and Tim Mackey makes this helpful clarification he reminds us that it's important as we read the law of Moses that we don't compare those laws to our contemporary 21st century laws because we are bringing vastly different cultural assumptions to the table. Instead, he notes that as we think about the law of Moses, it is helpful to compare that to the laws of her contemporary neighbors. So, say, the Assyrians. And as you do that, you quickly realize how radical the law given to Israel really was in that time and place, primarily because of the law's insistence, uh, a strong focus on justice for the oppressed. It was centered around not just me or our people experiencing life, but also doing, living in a way that promotes life for my neighbor. My neighbor who might be quite vulnerable and who 
might be much less fortunate than I am, the law focuses on them experiencing life as well. And we see this baked in the law throughout it. We see it in the Torah. Uh, I'll just mention a couple of examples. We see it in a place like Deuteronomy 14. At the end of that chapter, um, we find Moses reiterating the command to tithe. He says, look, one-tenth of everything you have belongs to God. Not because God needs it, but you relinquish it because you need to have greed and, and the love of possession stripped from your heart. But then he goes on at the very end of that passage, portion of the passage that's much less well known. And he says every third year there is a tithe for the poor. One-tenth of what you have goes to the orphan, the widow, and the sojourner. So not just doing what is good for me, but promoting life for my neighbor as well. We see it in the prophets. The Hebrew, maybe most notably, the Hebrew prophet Amos explicitly connects life for the people of God to the good that they do for others. In Amos chapter 5, so this is just before that famous line from the prophet, one that we routinely sing in a song that you'll be familiar with, that says, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Well, just before that text, the prophet explicitly connects life to the good that God's people do. He does so in this way in verses 14 and 15. Do what is good and run from evil so that you may live. Then the Lord of God, the Lord God of heaven's armies will be your helper just as you have claimed. Hate evil and love what is good. Turn your courts into true halls of justice. So there is, for the Hebrew prophets, an explicit connection between life for God's people and the justice they pursue. The legal code for Israel had an unusual but unrelenting focus on groups of people who had very few rights, very little assurance of help, and exceedingly great vulnerabilities, namely, we see that repeated, the sojourner, the orphan, and the widow. Again, the life that Israel was to choose was not just about me and my well-being or what is profitable for me personally, but what is good for others as well. So yes, we choose life for ourselves. We want to enter into abundant life. We want to be people who are pursuing Jesus, who are abiding in Christ, beholding God and experiencing God's life personally in that endeavor. But as God's people, we are also to be people who applaud and work for life in all circumstances for all people, especially those who have trouble working for it themselves. This is baked into the Old Testament law, Jesus reiterates it. We are to be people who choose what promotes and leads to human flourishing. So choose life. We've talked about this the past couple of weeks. We're going to spend next week pivoting a little bit but continuing the conversation. So we've talked about what leads to life personally for me, 
the fact that that is, and, and today, the fact that that's not just a call for me personally, but I am to be living in such a way that promotes life for my neighbor, for those who experience vulnerabilities that I don't experience. Next week, I want to focus on what leads to life in the local community of faith. But before we close today, I want to conclude by, by getting fairly practical for a moment. I'm going to display a few questions that I would encourage you to consider today and in the coming week. What is one specific choice that I can make this week to choose life? One specific way that I can practically express my love for God and my love for neighbor? In what way will that choice bring life to me? Because I actually think working for the life of my neighbor is actually life-giving for me as well. Um, so that there can be a personal benefit I receive from that, but in what ways will that choice bring life to other people that I come into contact with as well? And what are some specific steps I can make this week, maybe today, to put this into practice? So maybe take a photo of that. We'll, we'll post it on our social media. Um, I would encourage you to be thinking about that this week. Sound good? Would you stand? We are going to celebrate today around the table of our Lord, again turning our gaze to the life that Jesus offers. As we gather around these elements that represent his death, we are reminded that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. I believe that to be true for you. I believe that to be true for all of us. Um, and so we come to this table gazing to the life that Jesus offers. Just a, a, as a practical note, we'll make two lines down these center aisles as we come forward. When you get to the front, the words will be spoken over you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. You can take the elements on your own and return to your seat. But let me say a prayer as we approach the table of our Lord. O oh God, you declare your almighty power chiefly in showing mercy and pity. Grant us the fullness of your grace that we, running to obtain your promises, may become partakers of your heavenly treasure through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Would you join us at the table of our Lord?